this is the key mistake we make. I, I used to think that I, I, my job was to accumulate expertise, meet injured workers, and consider them to be empty vessels that I pour my expertise into until I fill them up enough that they're better, you know? This is Intelligent Rebellion. This episode of Intelligent Rebellion is with a great friend of mine, Mr. James Ellis. And James and I actually met on the internet when he read my book and then invited me to go sailing with him and two other men whom he also met on the internet. So I thought, heck, sailing boat, why not? Since then, James and I have been our little mini think tank and we've spent hours on telephone calls and in person having lunches and sailing around on his boat, which is a great perk of being a friend of his, uh, talking about healthcare and philosophy and life and compensation. Culturally, James and I are actually an odd couple. I mean, we couldn't have come from more different places. Now, James, being a sprightly young man, grew up in the central coast of New South Wales, and me, this migrant kid from Western Sydney. And though, this is what I love about humanity. And although our seemingly different points of origin, James and I share this thirst for knowledge and a need to expand our viewpoint and to explore and to reflect upon our experiences and those of others and of the world around us. As James has said, we both found someone who was willing to listen to our random thoughts and who genuinely is interested in the same things that we are. And since we met on his boat, James and I have become very good friends. We started off this episode wanting to talk about humanizing hacks and the organizational healthcare mythology. But as is true to James and I's conversation, we went on a bit of a tangent, but we just let it roll. And I'm hoping that you all really enjoy this episode of James and I just having one of our usual chats. For now, enjoy this episode of Intelligent Rebellion with my good, great friend, James Ellis. Hey, James, how are you going? Thanks for coming on board. Um, so I think we're just going to start basically by, I know a lot about you, obviously, because you've spent a lot of time hanging out, you and I. Yeah. So I'm yeah. just going to start, if you wouldn't mind answering the very first question that I ask everybody, which is, what has been your most recent personal rebellion? And uh, it could be work or home or anything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's such a funny question because I'd love to think of myself as a rebel, um, but the best I can come up with is sometimes I go out without a hanky. Um, I've, um, yeah, sometimes I don't brush my teeth till, till probably an hour or so after I've eaten. Um, I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, I, I, but to answer it more seriously, I, I think, I think I'm a, I, I think I'm a contrarian, Rhea. I don't mm-hmm. think I'm so much of a rebel. I think I'm a contrarian. And I also put a caveat on that too. I'm just not for the sake of being a contrarian and being opposed to everything. But I think later we'll, when we talk about um, how we could do this thing we call rehab or case management better, 
I really feel like what we need is more dialectic, you know, more engagement that's about genuine curiosity and what we're trying to discover. And I think in a sense I'm being a little bit of a rebel all the time by being less about assessment and diagnosis and less conformist with the system that's emerged and more of my more of my own flavour. So I, I have this little rebellion, I call it plan B, you know, for workers' comp. And so that's my mini, mini rebellion, I suppose. But uh, I don't know if that quite fits the bill of um, I'm not, I haven't got tattoos or anything. You know? <laughs> I don't have any tattoos either. And I, uh, and I think that's why you and I get along so well, James, is because <laughs> I feel like you and I have looked at this system, have worked in this system and in your sprightly young age as well and went, something doesn't sit right here. Something might be missing or there might be a better way of doing something. And we've sort of gone about and tried to figure that out as much as we can. Um, yep. and, and so with that, can you tell us a little bit about you? I mean, I'm so interested in p- people's stories just like you are and their origin stories. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey, how you found yourself in healthcare, because you're a physio by background, um, and then mm. how you sort of ended up, well, what your origin story is when it comes to healthcare. Yeah, I, I think um, in answering that question, the reason you and I became friends is because I read your book and I read your backstory and I and I don't usually read a whole book anymore because I read mainly non-fiction. I just read this bit and that bit. But I sat down and I read yours in one sitting, I think, um, one afternoon and thought, I've got to know this woman. <laughs> and I rang you and hence our dialogue began. And, and because your story and mine, I think, in some ways are similar. So, yeah, I was just, I, after I finished school, I was lost. I knew I was going to uni, which is ridiculous, really. Like, you know, I didn't have anything in particular I wanted to study. I, it was just the social pressure that I was... And I tried all sorts of things. I spent a year in the Navy. I spent some time studying engineering and then I discovered aerobics back in the 1980s, I think. And I'm going to stop you there. Can you tell us that aerobic story? Because you've told me before, but I find it so fascinating that you know or you did work with one of, like, the biggest people in aerobics right now. Les Mills. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Well, I, I got a job at this rundown little gym in the city and it got... After I started working there, it got bought out by this bloke I'd never heard of, Les Mills, <laughs> from New Zealand, and him and his wife would come over and his wife was crazy. Uh, she, was, she was in her 60s at the time and she would just get the leotard on and get up in front of the <laughs> class and go off and, and then she'd stand at the back of my class and critique me afterwards and, <laughs> and that, that was before they were so well known, you know, and they were the loveliest people. They'd come over, they'd always take us out to dinner. There was this Spanish restaurant they'd take us and we had, they introduced me to Paella and, uh, you know, they were just, and then their son <laughs> took over. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's my brush with fame, Les Mills. Les at, Mills. Uh, but and then that, the that, that, yeah, well, and I spent a lot of time in tights and a tight shirt <laughs> jumping around on stage, like it was like being a rock star, you know. <laughs> Every Monday a hundred people would turn up and we'd jump around to music and I can't dance and I can't sing but I could do that. You perfected, so that the grape, was, you perfected your grapevine, James. That was fun, yeah. <laughs> but that led me to physio, you know. 
Yeah, so you're a physio by profession and that kind of led you there and that's sort of what you stuck with. And what was it about physio and that you really enjoyed or that made you stick with it and then end up in, in the compo space? Yeah, well, what did I enjoy? I don't, I think, um, so the, the, the interest in gym and fitness led me to physio, which is a really common path for physios, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I got fit and I was cycling and I was doing weights and jumping around and then that led to the odd injury and treatment and, yeah. Then I went to America for a bit, for a year, and I worked over there and then I came back and worked in sports medicine but really fell into, you know, workers' comp. Uh, nobody nobody has a career plan to work in workers' comp. <laughs> no 17-year-old um, goes, oh, I'm going to go to uni and do uh, workers' comp. <laughs> I don't think careers advisors recommend you know, workers' comp to anyone, uh, nor should they maybe. <laughs> I, um, uh, I, look, I think it was one of those unplanned things where I joined a new practice, a physio practice, and they said, what can you bring to the table? And when I'd been in America, I'd been doing some multidisciplinary work and and I just said, maybe we should get into this work, you know, space. And uh, they went, sounds good, and I got the job and then I had to follow through with this brilliant I brilliant in inverted commas idea I'd had in my interview to answer a question I wasn't expecting. And and one thing led to another and I got accredited as a rehab provider. Yeah. And really I have to be honest, when I started the accreditation process, I didn't know what a rehab provider was. You know, I learned <laughs> as I did it and then I, like most things, just started doing. So um uh, I, I think so. I think that's like the best, the worst kept secret in OC rehab and compo is that we all like went out and went, yep, yeah, we're all going to start rehab providers or we're going to be rehab consultants. And we had this major plan about it. Like we didn't, no one did. As you no. said, most people that we speak to have just fallen into OC rehab. And, and my origin story is the same. It's kind of like yeah. as an exercise physiologist, I went clinical, started seeing workers' comp patients and went, oh, oh, there's this thing called a rehab consultant, I'll go and do that for a little bit. And and I think that's something that we have to be really admit and be really upfront to ourselves with is that we don't have the answers. We're not very good at a lot of the stuff that we do, but that doesn't stop us from exploring and imagining and trying to recreate different ways and learning a lot. And, And I think, you know, you and I have this really fun relationship in that, I go on about all these practical things about day-to-day stuff and how to do X, Y, and Z, and then you just go off and start throwing these theoretical models at me. <laughs> like, you're one of the people that I speak to in my life where I feel both dumb and smart at the same time. You sent me this thing called Plan B, and I know you've been sending people this Plan B, but one of the things that you sort of talk about there is about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to credit you with coining this phrase, is humanising workers' comp. Yeah humanizing that process and so you speak a lot of professor henry mintzberg and the organizational healthcare mythology okay so can you tell me who like who is professor henry we'll call him prof henry professor henry Mm -hmm. and like what's his personal background and why do you fanboy over him so much yeah well look i i fanboy over a lot of people (laughs) um and, and just to, to follow through on what you were saying about feeling dumb, I, I think the key is that we're all pretty dumb, you know. We, we, all know, we all know bugger all, really, you know. And there's this perception that systems and organisations enhance that. And, and in some ways they do, but 
So I, I fanboy over people who are much smarter and much more articulate than me. And there's a lot to choose from, Ria. <laughs> there's a big population of people who are smarter and more articulate than me. So really all I'm doing is picking up on snippets here and there. And and, and Henry Minsberg's one of many, you know, and, and uh, he's... He's devoted his life. He's a Canadian academic and he's devoted his life to studying management. I mean, he started out as an engineer. Uh, so, sorry, I should say not just management, but he's got a particular interest in the management of health mm-hmm. and health care. Yeah. And there's, there's quite a few things about his philosophy in health that really resonate with me. Oh, sorry, I was going to say people want to follow through. He does this thing called a TWOG which is really a, <laughs> yeah, a, I've seen a hybrid of a tweet and a blog, you know. And yeah. so he just he just pushes out these little snippets and they're little gems and you can subscribe and and uh, they're very um, digestible, you know. But when you talked earlier, you talked about our relationship just being fun and really I think you used the word we just see what emerges. <laughs> and emergence is this theme I think that we don't give enough credence to. Mm-hmm. Um so Henry Mintzberg's best known for being very critical of strategic planning. Yeah. Um, he claims that strategic planning is an oxymoron, okay? Yeah. Um, he, he says that strategy is something that emerges from the interaction of all the players, you know? Yeah. So, so another thing he talks about is how the jargon that references top management and middle management Yep. And he's critical of that because he says if you've got top management and middle management, you've really got bottom management. Just nobody says that, right? <laughs> and, you know, and there's all sorts of innuendo around that. But the, the reality is, like, that nobody wants to be a bottom manager, right? <laughs> um, and, and it's funny, but it also reveals how ludicrous the concept of middle management, management and top is. management is. Mm-hmm. And this idea that top management can come up with a strategy that then gets imposed and implemented and that that will be effective. His theme is that strategy emerges from the interplay. I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, I also have retention anxiety. Like I listen <laughs> yes. and read so much, but very little seems to sink in. But uh, every now and again, I surprise myself by remembering remembering something. And I think you and I have that. I mean, we have so much in common and, and as, but, you know, so much not in common as well. And I also, I think everybody has that, they suffer from that retention anxiety and it's the whole, what happens if I need information and I can't get it out? And I think that that hinders a lot of people to experiment and to try because I think we're so busy, especially in management and middle management or top management, as you mentioned, we always feel like we're an authority and we want to be right. We want to look good in front of our teams. We want to look right in front of our teams. And that can actually, I feel, can, can hinder creativity. It can hinder innovation because as a top manager where I have been previously, I was so worried about what happens if I get it, what happens if I get it wrong? Um, yeah. or, or people yeah, look at you as a pathway. Yeah, or people look at you as an authority and they say, well, you're the manager, you've been doing this for 10 years, how come you don't know the answer to this? So we kind of either make it up as we go yeah. um, or we just pretend that we know. And so yeah. that whole idea of emergence and being able to collaborate and be able to talk to people and figure out the answers as you go along, 
what is it specifically about his work where you go, heck yeah, yeah. like shit, yes, yeah. that is yes. cool, that is it. Like, what is it? Yeah. So, so you mentioned the pressure to get things right as a manager, yet, yet yeah. the ability to fuck up in public is <laughs> is actually very endearing and creates psychological safety. To be able to, to put your hand up and go, this is how I screwed up. And and I want to tell you all because you'll, you know, because then one, you'll trust me, and two, you, we can all learn from this. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's at the heart of this um, emergence of good strategy is the ability mm-hmm. to make mistakes. And I have to say, like, I've got three sons in their 20s, but now I have an eight-year-old stepdaughter and trying <laughs> to teach her it's okay to make mistakes. It's such a challenge because everything about our culture reinforces the need to be an expert and the need to be right and the desire to win and the desire to be the best. And and I think that inhibits um, collaboration and cooperation. And and human cooperation at the end of the day is 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 what we're all striving for, particularly in workers' comp. Goodness me. So. So this notion that strategy should be emergent, but also he has a solution in mind, which I, I think I've been influenced by him in trying to create my my plan B. Um, and the solution is about reframing. It's about um, instead of having this hierarchical notion of how an organisation should be, it's about encouraging open conversations and genuine curiosity between the people in the enterprise. That might be a sporting enterprise, it might be an organisation, it might you might be a rehab provider trying to motivate your team, or you might be one of the myriad of people who are engaged with an injured worker who's trying to trying to navigate their way to recovery. So so I proposed a reframing of workers' comp, you know. I've proposed a reframing of how we go about doing this thing called case management. In fact, the reframing does away with the term case management. It removes management from... And words are powerful, you know. Language, they're not trivial. And I think we talk about people not wanting to make mistakes and about this, you know, top, middle and bottom management... What are, like, going back to Prof Henry, like, what are his criticisms of organised culture or organisational culture? Yeah, well, he's actually he's actually written a book called The Eight Myths. Uh, mm. I think it's called The Eight Myths. I'll have to look it up now. But to answer that question, perhaps I'll just describe some of the myths that he has yeah. articulated, Okay. So one of the myths is, is, and I'm paraphrasing him, one of the myths is that healthcare can be fixed by charismatic leadership. Mm-hmm. He criticises that notion, you know, and it's not just healthcare. You see it in organisations all the time. Uh, and I'm watching with great interest because, you know, that Four Corners program about eye care and they revealed all the corruption and the shenanigans going on behind the scenes. Yeah. I'm sitting back now watching to see what emerges from that and waiting for them to appoint the charismatic leader who's going to turn it all around, you know, Um, and and that's not the answer. You know, the answer is how do we get the people at the front line to play well together (laughs) and how how do we capture what they know, you know, how do we capture what they know and not uh, assume that 
we're going to appoint some leader or leadership team that will have all the answers. Yeah, and I often talk about that. Workers' comp, I I feel like it's a bit of a unique beast because for it to work properly, you need every person involved in that case or that claim to do their job well, ethically, timely, and to actually give a shit about what they're doing because it is a human life that we're talking about. And it only takes one person to fail to, to read something or to action something and it's sort of just the whole structure just topples. And I guess I'd react to that by saying um, because we're people, we are going to fail to action things yeah. and we are going to forget things and we are going to drop the ball yep. um, and we have to expect that and not punish that, you know. Um, so we, we need to humanise, we need to, and, and part of being human is constantly being wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but how we deal with that is is what's important, you know, how we admit to that and how we, mm-hmm. and at the moment it's very hard to do that and not lose credibility with all the people you're playing with, you know. Yeah, but do you feel um, that as well sometimes, James, because as, say, a physio or an exercise physiologist or a doctor, me as a rehab consultant, you know, in this space, is we kind of put ourselves in a position to say, you know what, we are authority. Listen to yeah. us. We know exactly what we're doing. Like, you know, you get an orthopedic surgeon or, you know, I'm picking on orthopedic surgeons, but, oh, you know what, if we put a new yeah. leg in you, yeah, we're, we're, we're authority. So do you feel like we're almost setting ourselves up for failure? Well, or well, setting just, ourselves up to not be able to be wrong because we've mm-hmm. said to everybody that we're amazing and, and hey, check this us out, we're key, miracle workers. This is the key mistake we make. I, I used to think that I, I my job was to accumulate expertise, meet injured workers and consider them to be empty vessels that I pour my expertise into until I fill them up enough that they're better, you know. Mm. Um, and that was the mistake. I'm, I'm You know, I laboured under that misapprehension for years yeah, it, and it nearly killed me, you know. Like, well, that's an exaggeration, but it nearly caused me to change professions. I, I was really burnt out and sick of what I was doing, and it wasn't until I started to study social psychology that I started to get an understanding that that this this notion of expertise. Now, don't get me wrong. The way we collaborate is to specialize, right? So yes. we do have expertise. Yeah, but. You know, to put it in context with injured workers, I used to think that when I met them, they were ready and willing to hear from me on what they should do and that that was my job to tell them the best way forward. And they would tell me their story and I would interrupt and go, oh, geez, I don't know about Reiki and I don't know about the, you know, meditation might be helpful, but I don't know if it's going to cure your back pain and that, that's not evidence-based and this is an evidence but Like I had a very strong affiliation with evidence-based practice uh, um, I had an obsession with it at, at one stage, and um, but but that's not the way to help people. You know, it, the, the listening is the key. The listening yeah. to their story is the key. The shutting up and not interrupting and listening to what because they, they're making sense of their situation and they're not ready to hear from us. I mean, the best rule of thumb about when they're ready to hear from you is when they ask. <laughs> <laughs> That seems to work with with parenting as well, um, although it's bloody difficult to withhold. Uh, yeah, I mean that's right. I mean, as a parent, you, I mean, you and I obviously, you know, I've got my my two young boys, and I'm always like, well, I grew up 
you know, in a household where we respected our parents and where they're the authority of that household and you do as they, they say. And trying to, trying to be that for your kids, you kind of want them to tell them what to do, but they're not going to listen to you. And you're right, until they ask for that help or they realise that, oops, they fucked it up and they've done something wrong. Yeah. And, and, hey, they turn to you to go, oh, yeah, shit, like how do I put this Lego piece together? Like, and, and I think yeah. that's super important, um, that your point of that, there's all this evidence-based practice out there. There's all this type of stuff out there around, but science is science and we only know what we know, but we're open to being disproved and we're open to experimentation. I think that's where you and I sit on that stage and go, okay, people have done this, but is there a better way to, to do that? And I think this sort of leads me into the next sort of topic I want to talk about. Recently, I've been finding myself musing about healthcare in the context of traditional for-profit models. Um, and then given the purpose of healthcare mm. and what we try to do is to try to heal people and empower them, then if we make ourselves redundant, so like once we've helped someone move on or be better, we essentially make our services redundant. And so doesn't the business of healthcare is essentially flawed uh -huh. because making ourselves redundant is actually bad for a for-profit business? So, yeah. so I think is a trick. What's your actual view on business, also of healthcare as a business model? Yeah. And and where do you see? Like, I like to ask very frankly, like, where are we fucking this up? Like, yeah. where where are all? Why is Four Corners doing an expose on eye care? The previous question is, what were the criticisms Henry Mintzberg has of the system? And then, and then I got one out, and then we we went into this. Um, where are we fucking it up question he yeah. would say his other criticisms were that conventional wisdom is that healthcare requires more competition to be healthier and more measurement to be healthier and he okay. says that's not he's not that's not that's not true and we live in a capitalist you know um yeah. society and and we need to work um within that but where we're fucking it up is we're dehumanising people. We're turning them into claim numbers. We're turning them into cases. Yeah. You know, we, we everything about all the discourse about how we support people is framed through this lens of turning people into numbers. And, you know, I'll tell a story. When I was a young physio at Hornsby Hospital in the staff room, we, you know, after lunch, our conversation would turn at the end of lunch to, oh, I'm heading off to see I've got two backs and a leg and I've got a neck and I've got a... And, and one day, one of the more senior physios said, oh, I'm off to see my man with the arms and the legs. And, <laughs> and it just was such a ridiculous comment we all laughed, right, the man with the arms and the legs. But he yeah. had two broken arms and two broken legs, you know. So that was just the extension of... And it was funny because it's ludicrous, right? Yeah. Um, and... And everything in our system, including the measurement, the KPIs of return to work rates and costs, pushes us towards commodifying people rather than seeing the people. Yeah. So that's why I'm proposing a reframing. And, look, the money has to come from somewhere. We have to juggle the economics. Economics is really just an exercise in attributing value, right? Yes. We've got, yeah. we've got limited resources and we've got to... We've got to determine what we prioritise and value more. Than, and that's a complex world and that brings up ethical and moral dilemmas. But yeah, I but love that. You know, that's, so, that's cool. 
And that's what that's what humanity is. It, it's it's sort of juggling this idea of okay, yeah, you know, we want to make money because we're a for profit business, and there's always that catch twenty two of the well, okay, if I I want to be ethical in my business, I want to make sure that I maintain a duty of care to my my people, my staff, my patients, but. As a healthcare provider, if I don't charge enough or if I don't run a for-profit business, then I'll be out of work, which then essentially yeah. limits me in the people that the number of people that I can essentially help. I, I yes. think I think my gripe is when people start making business decisions based on profit. Yeah, you know, when they look at all the yeah. available evidence to them and ask themselves, oh, "I'm going to do 52 sessions with this person," even though that they know ethically, morally, scientifically. That, not, that might not be the best or is not the best course of treatment or care for that person. That's yeah. where I find, a, like, for me, that's an easy line to draw. You yeah. know, with whatever you want to call it, intuition, whatever you want to call it, your gut, when you're not helping somebody and it's turned into them being a dollar sign. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's what you and I have always called out. And that's what I'm calling out in our industry. You know when you're doing the wrong thing. Listen to that. But we always want to put profit before the, the humans in all of that. Yeah, and and oh gosh, I don't know which thread to pick up on, Priya. There's, <laughs> Choose there's, one. Choose five. There's, there's, <laughs> there's so many there. Like the intuition thread really I find <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe today's not the day, I'm sure. Although there is an analogy. Yeah, let me try and flesh this out. I don't know where I'm going with this. This is totally emergent, but I have, a, I have an idea. Okay. Shoot, go. So, Okay, so let's consider what intuition is, right? If intuition is knowing something without knowing how we know it, right? The gut feel. You know, you meet somebody, you like them, you don't like them, you have a feeling about whether you could trust them or not, right? Right. The people who study intuition have come up with some really interesting findings, okay? Mm -hmm. So you would have heard of Daniel Kahneman and Amos he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, Slow. won a Nobel Prize for it, you know. And he and another guy, Gary Klein, they both come at the intuition problem from, from different angles. And Kahneman's quite pessimistic about it and Klein's quite optimistic about it and they both openly admit that. But the example Kahneman gives is when he would ring his wife, yeah. she would pick up the phone and within two or three words he would know her mood, Right. Because he'd right. been with her for 20 years or more, 30, 40 years, I don't know. He he would know her mood. And we all have that, have that experience in long-term relationships, you know. Yeah. You ring up and you know, uh-oh, something's not right. Something's all right. Okay. In that situation, we don't quite know how we know. It might be their tone. It might be something they've said. It might mm-hmm. be how they've structured their sentence. It might be a pause between words. That, who knows? We don't quite know how we know. But it's very reliable because we know them very well. Very well, yeah. And then we make the mistake of thinking, we don't think, oh, I know my wife well because I've been with her for a long time. We think, gosh, I've got good intuition. <laughs> and then we think we've got good intuition in other domains. And one domain that's been studied, you know, exhaustively for the last 100 years is interviews in recruiting, okay? Yep. And it's well known that uh, in, in recruiting we have a strong intuitive sense about whether the person, I'm sure you've done this, interviewed people, and you get this strong intuitive sense about whether they'll work out or not. And I'll bet you've had the same experience with me. You've hired someone, you've been so excited, and three or six months later, 
it's the worst decision we ever made, right? Yeah. We've got oh, it completely wrong. Our intuition was was crap in that. And of course it is. We don't know that person. They're putting their best foot forward. Mm-hmm. They might have mentioned their footy team might be the same as ours. If it's me and they like sailing, they've got a job. Yep. If they, um, you know, if we've got things in common, it might be just, oh, I grew up in such and such, or we both travelled to, you know, the Greek islands or something, you yeah. know. So all of a sudden you bond with them over that and your confirmation bias sets in. And So our intuition, my point is our intuition can lead us astray. Yeah. And the analogy I'm going to try and draw here, this might be a really long bow, <laughs> is, is evidence-based practice. I'm a big fan, but I'm also yes. a big fan of, taking into account my experience and my judgment over a long period of time. Yeah. And sometimes together that leads me to some decision-making that is better. And sometimes it leads me astray. Yeah. So I'm calling um, uh, evidence-based medicine, if you like. On the one hand, we've got facts and figures and a rational Mm -hmm. approach to the world. On the other, we've got a more um, ill-defined, amorphous uh, gut feeling spiritual even approach to the world and they they all have value yeah but let me let me propose this in that case Mm. if Mm. if you think about why we have evidence-based research and why we do the research that we do isn't it because someone's just going oh may that that may have been right or from my experience I've seen this happen in the clinic why don't we go about and try to research it I love evidence-based research and I also love reading when we've disproved something already. I think that's, I think that's mm-hmm. just the most awesome thing that can happen is someone goes, oh, by the way, I've done this and we've proven this wrong. Um, yep. That means that we're learning and that means that we're getting either better or worse yes. um, of what we're doing. Yes. But So I propose this to you. When someone thinks about doing research, and I know you, you've thought about this as well, it's because we kind of have a gut feeling and an intuition about something and yes. we want science to either prove it or disprove it. Is it. Isn't that what a hypothesis actually is? Is you've Absolutely. seen something in clinic and your gut feeling says it. Yes. So I think the two go hand in hand and people just don't want to admit to that. It's like I have a hunch. Well, let's test it in the lab. <laughs> I think that's a great summary. And, I mean, let's face it, science, mm. where evidence-based practice comes from, is the enterprise of overcoming our biases, right? Yeah. It's just that there's also a litany of examples of where science has been misappropriated and fraud- <laughs> fraudulently used to, to, to prove the hypothesis mm-hmm. that the confirmation bias drove us, the scientists towards in the first place. But that's not a reason to, to disregard the scientific method. That's just a reason to do better science. But when we're dealing with injured workers and trying to support them. We make these decisions all the time mm-hmm. um, and their interventions, the minute we discuss them with the worker, they become an intervention. Yes. And um, a lot of that, there's no getting away from the fact that we're using our gut feel on the run all the mm-hmm. time. So, yes, we want it supported by the evidence. We really, we really do. And we want to challenge statements that are not evidence-based but... My contention is that can only happen when you've developed a relationship and when they trust you. And that yep. takes a lot more listening than we get given time to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm doing a lot of non-billable listening. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, you, know, and I, you and I both. But that's okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm at peace with that. 
Um, yes. uh, Cause everything can't be billable. Uh, and, and if it was, it'd be a little bit obscene, you know? But, so, and again, I think, I think this is another, this is a, a, an awesome conversation that I would love to have with you at another time because I've mm. ranted on and everyone who's read my stuff knows that I rant on about billable hours forever mm. in a day. They are my pet peeve within our mm. industry because yeah. how do you, and, and we, I always say we're so busy trying to accumulate billable hours rather than hours of care. Yeah. And those two things cannot, well, they can coexist, but the, people need to understand within the industry that you can't, you can't say to somebody, okay, stop that conversation because you've only got 1.0 hours billing allowed mm. for that conversation. Uh, because that's when you start doing more talking than you are doing listening because you're trying so hard to get as much information as you can across. Yeah. So I think for me that's one of the places that we're really screwing it up within healthcare is mm. that we're building these models around not hours of care and what this person truly needs, but it's kind of like you have 60 minutes. Now do as much as you possibly can within that 60 minutes. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is not listening. It's a mm. lot of prescribing or treatment, as you mentioned, or interventions, yes. as you've said. Yes. Um, and, and so the system doesn't allow for that. That's where I think. So I want to sort of circle back around, and I love, I, I know you and I will digress all day long. I call that, I want, um, I call that premature articulation. Premature articulation. <laughs> dumping information on people way before they're ready for it. You know? <laughs> Sorry. Premature articulation. Oh, you know, I'd love, you knew I was going to like that. You've had that one in the barrel. So, um, so I think just as this podcast is about optimism and imagination, it's also about rebellions and little personal mm-hmm. rebellions. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to be like the genie in Aladdin. Like I've mm. suddenly turned blue and I'm singing mm. songs. I'm going to ask you, James. Mm. You have all the power in the world, right? Mm. What does your healthcare system look like? Mm. So I want to I want to throw in this war cry that I like you know like what do we want gradual <laughs> incremental iterative change when do we want it ah uh, eventually I guess <laughs> you know <laughs> so, and and I, I don't and, and this is dis- this will disappoint you because I don't I don't have a magic I have a bunch of things I'd love us to do differently now but. I don't have a magic solution. I think the solution comes out of this process of sense-making and collaboration and human cooperation, mm-hmm. and it's about... So we need to listen more to workers. We need to not discount their stories. And I'm, when I say we, I mean the system. Um, it, it, it's not good at listening genuinely um, to what they're saying because their stories, in their beefs are repetitive. We've heard them again and again and again, and that's... And it needs to de-individuate. So not, it's so easy to blame the person. Oh, they're not motivated or mm-hmm. I wish they'd try harder or, you know, they probably need to grit their teeth or why didn't they do, they didn't finish the pain management course or they didn't, you know, that it's so easy to blame the individual. Yeah. So if I could wave my magic wand, you know, we'd all be taking a step back and seeing how we're, we're culpable. Yeah. I think we need to look at how we're fucking it up. Yeah. Uh, and that, and I think there are lots of ways we're fucking it up. Yeah. Um, so the urgency around achieving a predetermined goal of return to work in six weeks, and like, you know, this this is bullshit. This this idea that we can predict, there's nothing in the in the literature that suggests that we're good at prediction. Okay, us humans, we're bad at prediction. 
So, so wave my magic wand. I'll give you a great example from yesterday. I was involved in a case conference, a dial-in one, obviously COVID times. Yeah. Was the doctor, the worker, she's in hospitality and highly intelligent and articulate, and her supervisor with whom she has a great relationship, okay? Yeah. And the four of us were on the boa and we were hashing out. She'd been off work for four or five weeks and she's ready to come back. And you know that standoff where the, the supervisor says, well, tell me the restrictions and I'll find us something to do. And the doctor's sort of saying, well, what have you got for it to what do? What have you got for it? Yeah. You know, and then, uh, well, you, you know, you tell me yours, then I'll tell you mine. And I just said, we don't know her restrictions. We're going to make a guess, okay? Yeah. Um, she's got, you know, whatever diagnosis. Let's say no repetitive use of the upper limbs and no sustained postures. And he's mm-hmm. saying, for how long? I said, we don't know. But if I just say that to you, have you got work for her to do? And this woman, she's in retail, but she's a manager. You know, and I know she can do rosters. She can get on the phone. And I even said, she hasn't been there for four weeks and she's a team leader. Surely there's some value in her checking in with her staff. She could spend a couple of hours a day, you know, her... She's got a team of about, I, I would guess, about 30 people, including yeah. maybe more including casuals. She could be ringing them and checking in and seeing how they're going and finding out what they've been up to and how they've been coping. And, and my argument is this relating to people is good for your business mm-hmm. and it doesn't require repetitive use of the upper limbs. You know, she doesn't <laughs> need to be at a coffee machine making coffee. She doesn't yeah. need to be behind the bar. She's in charge of a lot of people. She needs to be talking to them and asking them how they are and letting them know she's been off for a while but she's back. Yeah. It's going to take a lot of time. But that doesn't sound like real work, you know. And, so, and this is that, that whole idea as well. And, again, circling back to the experimentation and failure. I, yes. I've only ever written one return to work plan in the thousands that I've written, in the years that I've been doing this that actually went from stage to stage date to date to date and so this idea of okay we're all going to sit down and on this piece of paper we're going to just write exactly what this person can do like that's just not possible that the way it needs to be framed is okay what is the absolute contraindications to this person doing x y and z lifting pushing pulling whatever it is and then let's play yeah let's give them the top end not the minimum end give them the top end of what 100% they shouldn't be doing and then let's play with the return to work. Yes. People are genuinely clever. They're smart. They know yes. their job. They know their limitations. Let's just give them a little bit of trust, a little bit of credit to, to be able to live their lives and live their work lives as well. But I'm going to go back to the one that really interests me was going back to that whole accountability piece, right? Yep. And yep. we are. We are so quick to blame our patients for yes. do it, for not, yeah, for, for all the things that you said, for being non-compliant and for this, that, the other. The question is, where am I screwing things up? Yep. Obviously, I'm not doing something right because they're not showing up to my sessions, because yep. they're not going to work. And then the question of, am I then the right person to be treating this person? Is yep. there somebody in my community who's going to be better at doing this, who has a better skill set than I do? Mm. Um, mm. And again, are we making those decisions because we're going to lose a patient, which then will make us less money and less redundant? So what decision are we making? Are we making it from an ethical hum- human perspective or are we doing it from a business perspective? Yep. Uh, and that's where sort of my, my biggest issue is, is the accountability. Stop blaming 
them? Or did we write a return to work plan that was so ridiculously optimistic, not yes. intelligently optimistic, just ridiculously optimistic, and we just set everything and everybody up for failure? But we'll blame the worker because they're the ones that are, aren't achieving what we thought. You know, Ria, have you heard of Rosa Carrillo? Carrillo? Uh, we'd say Carrillo, she'd say Carrillo. She's Mexican, I think. What mm. would she say? Carrillo? Tell me about Rosa. Yeah. Oh, she, she's written an amazing book and she's very active on LinkedIn. And something that comes to mind, she says that um, inclusion precedes accountability. Mm-hmm. So if we want people to be accountable, they need to feel included. They need to feel part of the team. They don't need to be KPI'd into compliance. They, yep. they need to feel like we give a shit about what they think and what they say and what they, what they do. Yeah. Um, and if we want people to be accountable, we need to be, her theme is we need to include them. Yeah. So going back to my example, I've got a team leader sitting at home who could be ringing people and, and saying, seeing if they're feeling included and seeing um, how they are and making them feel like she cares about them, which I know she does. Mm-hmm. She just needs to be given a licence to pick up the phone and, and call. So the accountability piece, counterintuitively, is not about top-down management mm-hmm. making and, and, and I think what you're taking up is my theme of how we're fucking it up. So we need to look at ourselves and go how... How can we be more accountable to that person? Well, what are we doing to make them feel included, included. in the process? Yeah. Are we are we engaging them or are we talking at them and telling them shit, you know? And, um, and I think, and again, you know, you go back to, you're going back to a, sort of that point that you made about there are so many people involved in a workers' compensation claim that mm. we forget about the actual person we're all trying to help. And that's the injured yes. worker. And, yes. and, and you speak about we've been hearing the same stories for years and years and years and forever. Well, the story mm. that we constantly hear is the one of, from a worker saying, I don't feel included. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. People are yeah. telling me what to do. Yes. It, it, just, yes. it seems like that is just the endless repeated story that happens. Yep. Um, yes. and, and, that, and so participation is in- inclusion. Mm. We, we have to get them to firstly trust us, to listen to what we're mm. saying when they're ready to listen to it and can make actual proper decisions about mm. it. And, mm. and so th- I think I was going to move on to like sort of, you know, right now I'm really obsessed with Sam Harris, <laughs> like oh. super obsessed oh. with Sam Harris, the Who neuroscientist. Is Sam Harris? I don't know. Is it you not? I'm just I'm totally obsessed a, with him at the moment. I'm a, I'm a Sam Harris fan, but you've got to be careful when you say that because you alienate a lot of people. But, you do alienate, but, but, I, I, but I think people who listen, who's going to be listening to this podcast is like, well, we're yeah. not, we're not, we're not choosing sides. We're just having this really cool conversation. So, um, but that's like right now, that's who I'm obsessed with. And so yeah. you've spoken to me about um, Rosa Carrillo. Carrillo. Yeah. yeah. Um, who at the moment? is just totally rocking your world. Who yeah. are, I mean, I know you love yeah. to listen to like four-hour-long podcasts. Oh, yeah. So who are, well, you, who are you obsessing, yeah. vibing over at the moment? Yeah. Okay, this name's really memorable. Daniel Schmachtenberger. <laughs> absolute, absolute. Yeah, I'm totally fanboy over him. <laughs> and so let me answer your question this way. Because um, um, I want to mention Edgar Schein too, who wrote this book called Humble Inquiry. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll give you all these links and you'll, you'll have show notes for the podcast. Yeah, I'll put them on there but, for everybody who wants but, to. 
Yeah. This attitude of humble inquiry is really what I'm talking about with injured workers is don't go in there as the expert ready and willing to tell them what to do. Go in them with an attitude of genuinely trying to find out what their story is, what they're thinking, what they think works, what they think doesn't work. And they will notice when you adopt an attitude of humble inquiry, people notice. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I did this experiment on my on my sons as when they were teenagers. You know, that's when I learned about, and they noticed that I stopped, I back didn't stop, backed off, telling them and and listened more. Yeah. So, but but my main fanboy moment at the moment is Daniel Schmachtenberger and I can't possibly do him justice in the time we've got available other than to say to people look him up so he's heading up a project called the Consilience Project yeah and there's a website I think it's consilienceproject.org or something like that but yeah um and he is just brilliant to listen to he's really zoomed out big picture he's a true polymath I think he was homeschooled by parents who are I think both were social anthropo- anthropologists. Um, he has this theme. He says we're, he, he says we're screwing up education, amongst other mm-hmm. things. But he's really humble too. He has a way of getting these themes across without being a teller. He's, he's more of a, a muser. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he says when our kids say to us, why is the sky blue, we say go and do your times table, you know. Um, <laughs> Don't worry about that now. You've got to learn your times table, right? We don't really answer the question. He says education should be about finding out what they're into and, in Mm -hmm. his words, facilitating the fuck out of it. (laughs) If they want to know why the sky is blue, and these days it's so easy with, you know, you Google and Wikipedia and you just, let's find out why the sky is blue. It's literally at your fingertips. Information is literally at your fingertips. Yeah. But, but, of course, we don't look it up and tell them. We've got to go, how can you find out why this guy is blue? <laughs> why don't, let's have a look here. What about over here? And why is the ocean green and blue and brown? And, mm-hmm. you know, the, just the, the genuine curiosity is something that we need to facilitate. So it, that's my main answer to your question, who am I fanboy over at the moment? <laughs> Daniel Schmachtenberger. Daniel he's, Schmachtenberger. He's yeah. He's the yeah. man at the moment. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, as we start to wrap up, and I was like, you know, you know, you and I can talk for like hours and we have yeah, we've spoken and for have hours done. and hours and have yes. done previously. There's plenty of evidence for that. Question, but what was something or is something that you did for fun? Because I'm all about intentional fun. I am yep. all about that we work hard, we, we play hard, but to be a full stack human, and I'm going to give that credit of a full stack human to a friend of mine, uh, Rebecca, you've got to be... A whole person you're not just work you're not just family you're not just personal yeah. or spiritual whatever you want to call that so mm. what is something fun that you did recently that was only for you so no bringing yeah. up the wife or the kids just just <laughs> for you yeah well here's a little act of rebellion i don't think anything's <laughs> ever just for for us but i know the spirit of your question i completely yep. get it yeah I, look i um i have no shortage of fun in my life that the, the thing like I'm a lifelong sailor and and my son's come back from overseas and and said dad let's and he kind of learned to sail I, I taught him a little bit and then he quickly got beyond me and but so he and I are getting these boats and we're going to race them together and and that for me is learning how to learning how to so I'm I've gotten in this boat and I'm a total klutz it's been I don't know 30 40 years since I've sailed dinghies properly 
Yeah. And I'm maybe not that long, but so I'm in this boat and my mind knows what to do. And my 59 year old body is just not cooperating, but it's the best fun. It's skill learning. It's, it's a bit scary. It's uh, cognitively demanding. And I'm engaging by doing it with a little, I'm re-engaging with the community at the local sailing club and my son's a part of it. And yeah. to me, that's just the best fun ever. So, um, but that's, yeah, it's selfish, but it's great. But, but well, it's not you know. selfish. I think yeah. that's the whole point of this whole thing is I think we need to get out of the mindset that doing things for ourselves and doing things that we love to do and, and challenge us and is fun for us is actually giving back to our community because it means that we can be our self, our best level self. Yeah, yeah. Representing our best self to our community, to our family, to our friends, to our patients, to our work. And everybody's going to, everybody is going to be happy about that. Yeah. Um, the whole community. If people find what they're good at and, and, and we, you spoke about general, um, sorry, specialisation and expertise. Mm. And there's also the idea of generalists, generalists. People mm. who don't want to be experts in anything, but they just know a lot about lots of little. Oh, I love things. polymaths. I love. Yeah, which is which is awesome. We need people like that because yeah. I think I'm a bit of I'm a generalist. I like to I like to know a, a little bit about a lot of different things. But th mm. that means that there are people out there who are specialists, and that gives them mm. the space to be specialists, which is yep. really awesome. But I don't think it's selfish at all, and I think this is one of my biggest messages on the Intelligent Rebellion is about. If you want to go and do something that makes you smile, fuck it. Go and do that thing that makes you smile because that's going to make you a better person and you're going to be a better mom or a dad or a parent or whatever um, to the people around you. And if everybody oh, let just... Me then, let me then tell you, I'll finish with this. I think we're getting close to the end, aren't we? <laughs> yes. Because the other person I'm fanboying over is this Indigenous academic called Tyson Yunker Porter. Ah, yeah. And and I might have told you about him. He wrote mm -hmm. this amazing book called Sand Talk and he calls it a cheeky reverse anthropology. It's basically what the Indigenous um, people can teach us about, uh, about our social structures, you know. Yeah. And, and he says when his friends tell him, look what modernity has given you in terms of quality of life, his answer is, well, yeah, what, eight-hour day if you're lucky, probably mm -hmm. 12. Uh, he said, you know, in my, in my culture, you know, we would have spent back in the day three or four hours engaging in work, which mm -hmm. is hunting and, hunting, you know, um, whatever, uh, hunting and gathering. Just meeting it's survival the, needs. The, the, the yeah. bulk of the day would have been spent in the extended family together teaching mm -hmm. the, the, the kids stuff and indulging in artworks, you know artistic pursuits mm -hmm. uh, and then lots of communication around the campfire, telling stories, passing on the oral history. And he says, so, you know, the argument that what modernity has given us is an improvement on that is a hard argument to make. Mm -hmm. um, and that fits what you were just saying, I think, about, you know, the fun and, and engagement with life in a way that's, that's not as anxiety-provoking as our current uh, reach for the dollar, you know, and reach yeah. for the GDP. So, yeah, so there you go. There's another another fanboy. And that's, and that's going to be definitely, I think, a conversation that you and I will have. I feel like, James, you're going to yeah. be a repeat guest on this podcast, oh, 100%. Um, but yeah. look, for now, I I can't even thank you. Like, I know we've been 
trying to plan this for, for ages, ages, ages. We've been planning this. And thank you so much for coming on board the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. Um, I know you and I will probably hang up from here and talk some more, but where are you going right now? You told me before you left, but yeah, you're I'm going about this, to... The wind's up. I'm looking at... I'm going sailing. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll piss off and let you go. In this new boat. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll piss off and let you go because you don't want to miss <laughs> the wind. So. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. And okay, um, again... I'm looking forward to seeing you in the flesh, Rhea. It won't be long, I think, at the next week. After next week, we're allowed to move Yeah. On. Look, we're recording this um, on the Wednesday before, apparently, uh, Freedom Day. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sure I'll see you soon and your beautiful family. So. Yeah, likewise. All right. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Rhea. Bye. Bye. Intelligent Rebellion Podcast is a Three Sticks production. It is produced, written, and hosted by me, Rhea Mikado. Will is the emperor of sound, mixing, and editing, and is a talent behind all our original music. This episode is dedicated to my mate Blair, who also loves to sail. Love you, Blair.